In Dennis Mahoney's novel Ghost Love, protagonist William Rook is a reluctant occultist living in a house that's haunted by a ghost named June. She's trapped in a limbo that he's determined to free her from. That will mean removing her from his house. But how can he? He's fallen in love with her. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. William Rook makes the decision to move into a house he knows is the scene of some terrible occurrence that affected his mother in the last months of her life. There are many questions he has that he believes will be answered if he inhabits this house. He comes to encounter marvelous and confounding situations and creatures, and something he hadn't counted on was falling in love with a ghost. Let's have a ghost story. To start us off this week, here's author Dennis Mahoney reading from the novel Ghost Love. Our conversation follows. Okay, chapter one, My Haunted Mother. Every room we enter is immediately haunted, my mother once said. She was a librarian with an effervescent love of the occult. But I never knew if she truly believed in otherworldly forces prior to the winter of 1998 when she entered a mysterious brownstone and only part of her came back out. Her name was Charlotte. She had auburn hair, starburst freckles on her shoulders and cheeks, and a captivating gangliness that reminded me more of my second-grade classmates than any of their mothers. She laughed whenever she sneezed. She hugged a lot. She daydreamed in a wonder-struck, concentrated way that made me want to know whatever she was thinking. Her favorite library patron was a man named Leonard Stick. He was remarkably active at the age of 90, and he credited his vigor to meaningful work and a lifelong diet of root vegetables. Mr. Stick shared my mother's love of the occult and was, according to her, a man of direct experience. She delighted in helping him locate obscure texts through interlibrary loan. They were peculiar books on ultra-specific subjects, children's teeth, winding shrouds, the effect of gravity on ethereal bodies. Many of the books existed as single copies in remote libraries, and although my mother always succeeded in filling his requests, the books would often vanish from the Dewey Decimal System, and sometimes even from my mother's memory as soon as he returned them. In early January of 98, Mr. Stick abruptly stopped visiting the library. My mother grew concerned and visited his brownstone, where she discovered he was ill and couldn't leave the house. From that day on, she visited Mr. Stick every day after work, and often on the weekends, and sometimes late at night. I'd grown up watching my mother knitting hats for charity drives, holding hands with lost children, and wafting hornets out of the house instead of whacking them with newspaper, and so her devotion to a lonely old man was unsurprising. I was seven that year, the only child of a happy marriage, and thought of death as a fascinating misfortune other people suffered. Over dinner one night, I asked my parents if Mr. Stick was dying. Of course, my father said. He's 90 years old. Unless he has a lightning rod that animates bodies, has he got one of those? Nope, my mother said. Odds are grim, then. He ought to be in a nursing home, he added, not unkindly. He only needs some company, my mother said. My father raised his fork, pretending to be stern, don't get into his will. We'll end up with a house full of shrunken heads and potions. And don't let him haunt you. What if I like being haunted, she asked. 
My father turned to me and said, when I was your age, I learned that when a person very special to us dies, they float around in heaven, watching us forever. I think of that now whenever I'm on the toilet. Not to worry, my mother said. Even ghosts get afraid. I liked the way my parents talked. There seemed to be a signal underneath their words, a secret language they alone understood. Only you can haunt me, no one else, my father said. My mother sipped her wine. I'll haunt you both, I promise. Regarding ghost love, there's a nice, long, and varied history of ghosts and ghost stories in literature. Um, We see them in Shakespeare, but we see them, too, in Shirley Jackson, Toni Morrison, more recently with Britt Bennett's work. Tell me where your ghost story fits in this kind of, well, maybe it's an imprecise genre, but I, I think it's a very legitimate one. A difficult question to answer. Um, I had an interview recently where someone asked me what my favorite ghost story was, and I completely drew a blank. I, of course, I thought of you know many of them afterwards. I, I tend to operate in a strange fictional place of writing things that I'm not currently devouring. So I'm not reading a ton of ghost stories or even thinking about them necessarily uh, as a rule when, I'm, when I am writing this kind of material. I'd say lately it started to shift over uh, into a more intentional consumption of that material. Um, a lot of the examples you give are great. Uh, things like Shakespeare, things like some of the old Gothic English novels. Uh, you know, Jane Eyre doesn't have a ghost, but there's a sense that there's one throughout. I, I've always been drawn to that kind of spirit, not, not so much poltergeists moving things as the people factor. Um, and I suppose the tradition of weird fiction, uh, however one would define that, is what's most interesting to me and in that it tends to ask more questions than it answers. Mm-hmm. And I like confronting those elements of the supernatural because they seem to register with the very natural. Um, they resonate somehow with all of the unanswerables just on a regular Tuesday of ordinary life. So it's a great way to explore things like depression and grief and suicide and wonder and curiosity. And that ended up being my way uh, towards this material, that it, it gave me a new access point for thinking about basic existential questions and just regular human uh, life. Well, I get what you mean about it's a ghost story, but not in the way uh, one might assume. There's a line in the book. It's, a house is haunted only by the people who are in it. That's a line I underlined. I highlighted it in pink. I drew a star by it. I wrote it it out a few times in my notes. Uh, It says it. It says a lot. There's a cable channel on television that features all kinds of shows about ghosts. It's called the Travel Channel, but it's all it, there's all these shows about ghosts. Uh, I can't believe you actually came to this point. My wife and I stumbled into a complete obsession with ghost adventures, specifically. Oh, yes. And you're right. It, it cracks us up. It's, I used to work at a cable network. I did TV research, and you can see networks go that way once in a while where they have a hit show that was an outlier. They didn't expect it to be the hit. 
and suddenly it begins to overwhelm the network. It's almost like what happened when MTV introduced reality TV, uh-huh. and suddenly videos became less and less relevant, and it's not music television anymore, it's this other thing. And it seems like the Travel Channel has become that. They've got at least a dozen ghost shows now, and you know, good luck finding a show about actually traveling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I hate to... Uh ask you that question adjacent to like one of my favorite lines in the book. Uh, but I don't mind the, you know, the ghost adventures, but I wondered um, as I was reading even what you, if you, you know, if you were familiar with them and then what do you make of them? What, what, why are they so popular? What are people reaching for when they commit to the, you know, episode after episode of ghost adventures? Right. Uh, it's a good question. My wife and I have wondered why we uh, have almost <laughs> run out of episodes to watch on that particular series. I mean, so much of it is the personality of those those guys. Um, they're just a riot. You get, to, you get to know them and you get to see how genuinely passionate and committed they are to this search. Like, they believe it. And I, I think that's appealing when people really believe in something and really go for it it starts to convince you that there might actually be something there. Uh, you can make the, the same comparison to religion, to passionate hobbies, to pretty much anything somebody pours their life into. We have so few actual answers about anything that any kind of true commitment is, is an exciting thing to watch. So if I'm not personally going to houses to look for ghosts, I may be sitting here writing this material and someone might look at me and think, why in the world is this guy writing this kind of stuff as opposed to any other form of literature? I suppose it's all just this search for answers. And like I said, so much of it comes down to just trying to get through a regular day. Nobody ever really seems to come up with the super answer. Uh, Religion, science, everybody's still grasping after thousands of years of thinking and written material and for the most part people just want to know why they're getting out of bed in the morning and and it is a it's maybe the hardest question most people face um and so we look we look for answers in in strange places and sometimes a resonance will come that doesn't make sense in a logical way but it does get you out of bed or it does help you commit to a relationship or get over a mental health issue or an emotional struggle william rooks our protagonist and he's an occultist he's been very influenced by his own sense of being haunted, his own loss of his mother and then his father. And he ends up buying this house, not just any house. It's a house that is a double image of itself. Then he has a doppelganger with the character of Other William, um, who serves a purpose I find really interesting in the scope of this book. Then there's a three-winged coffee bean-eating pigeon a hundred pound centipede. <laughs> I see all the merchandising for for your book. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Gormley, this mysterious guy that inhabits a space in the house that William cannot enter, and there's so much mystery and enigma around that. And Mr. Stick and no action figure for Mr. Gormley. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> or Mr. Stick. He remains unseen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it would have to be like some mint chewing gum or something. Um, yeah. And then, uh, then Ghost Love June herself. Where did these characters come from? Where did they all come from? This is the most organic uh, my fiction ever was. I was between projects. Um, my second novel, Bellwether, I'd been working on that for a long time, and it had a female protagonist. 
And so when I went to start something brand new, I just decided, well, I'll, I'll pull a 180 and I'll write something very different. And that included just writing a male lead. So almost to keep my arm in shape, as I was waiting for the next big idea, I started blogging as this man named William who lived in a haunted house. And I just thought, well, I'll just do these little throwaway updates on a blog and do them a few times a week just, just to sit down and actually put words on the page. And then he began to experience the phenomena of this house and he began to meet this ghost that he couldn't identify to the point where I started to get curious because I didn't know who it was. I didn't know if it was a woman. I didn't know if it was a man. Didn't know if it was a malevolent or benevolent entity. And in the relationship building that just came out in those little entries, I started to see that they were falling in love and I was starting to get very curious about knowing her more. And so the trip I kind of took with William, um, enough of those elements came out of the early blog pieces where all of a sudden I just decided this feels like a long story and I think I'll write it and see where it goes. I read about how you were working on your writing arm and doing just a, a whole lot of writing around this in coffee shops, 25, 30 minutes at a stretch. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it got me to thinking about the pandemic and, you know, how much I miss going to the coffee shop to work. Um, how's that been for you just in terms of your process? It's been good. I'd say in the last year or so, I've been much more of a homebody with work. Um, I've got my space now. My wife and I both work from home. We were very much in a groove in January. Uh, we happened to both be doing home workouts more or less everything you'd want to be doing when a pandemic starts and you get locked in the house. So we were already in a bit of a groove before March and April really forced us in. Um, I miss socializing. You know, I, I definitely do, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it, what are you going to do? It's, uh, I know you, you do your best getting through day to day and just focusing on the work. Um, the podcast that spun out of ghost love and William Rook, has been a good connector for me. Um, it, it features William and a handful of other characters that sprang up out of this world. And it's called Equinox Society Radio. I'm working on the second season now. And through that um, and through Instagram, I, I've got a great little cult audience that follows. Mm-hmm. And they seem really engaged with the material in a way that my earlier writing hadn't prompted. Um, I'm doing a lot of weird experiments like a paper mail. There's there's quite a bit of letter exchange with a P.O. box. I mail out buttons and stickers and strange notes and keys. And uh, we've got a landline now that I'm encouraging people to call and leave a message. Trying to get out of the digital relationship and into something a little more tactile or a little more personal. And it's it's been a really exciting playground through through the whole process. Wow. And are your followers amenable? Are, are your fans amenable to that? Obviously, it's so fun to get mail, <laughs> to get real mail. Yeah. Uh, I, I, if I put up a request, I usually have to clip it. Uh, or I'm sorry, if I put up an offer, I usually have to clip it. At, you know, I can only do 50. Wow. Um, it, it always takes longer to stuff 50 envelopes than you think it will. <laughs> and what are stamps now? They're almost 60 cents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, there have been times I've offered 100, you know, little things in the mail, and I realize, oh, gosh, this is going to cost me $80 in a day and a half. It's great to send it out, and, you know, people are excited to get them. But, you know, there are, I don't know how scalable it will be if the audience keeps growing. You know, it's fun. Like, it's great to have people actually call the phone and leave a message with your voice. And 
the amount of trust that you get out of something like that is it's amazing. So much of writing in the old sense of, you know, you'd write a novel, a publisher would put it out. You know what your sales numbers are and you have no idea who just read it in Arkansas or Pennsylvania. And in this case, I'm really getting to know these people in, in some way. I'm, I'm recognizing this is an actual human being who actually interacted with my work and they're sending messages. And even if it's just something as simple as sending a little index card note, there's a, there's an honest to God communication going on. That seems very meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so hard to make contact with, uh, with an audience or with anyone when you're doing art. I mean, there's, there's so much you scroll through Instagram and there are you know, really 4,000 great things to look at. And you try to wonder what's going to get through and what's going to pop and what's going to mean something to people. And I guess I hit a certain point where I just thought, well, I'll try anything that seems fun to me and anything that seems to light me up. So like the telephone is just a fun thing to have. I haven't had a rotary phone in 15 years and it's just me. It's four pounds. The thing it's at least as old as 1984. <laughs> um, it's just kind of great to have that. And, and the amount of connection I get in return has been, has been really thrilling. Um, you know, I can do art, I can do postcards, I can kind of do anything. Um, and I guess why wouldn't I, I suppose I I tried to get back to a more playful sense of art as opposed to thinking of it in a really rigid, I've got to write a 300 page book and that's it type of mentality. So it's not, it's not marketing I'm doing so much as it's just play. Mm -hmm. And I feel like William Rook, the protagonist in your novel is that way too. You know, he just fills the hours of the day reading and, you know, being kind of industrious just in his own ways. And, you know, he's, there are no characters in this novel who are walking around with cell phones, checking social media. Right. So there's just like this timelessness about it that, that so much of this, you know, of this idea of, of this hearkening back. Yeah. And I, I'm not a Luddite. It's, um, you know, I, I mean, I love technology and I love something like being able to communicate with people on Instagram or Facebook. I just, I like the other opportunities that are out there. And, you know, when it comes, certainly when it comes to storytelling, like you said, William's never walking around looking at social media. It is one of the things you realize if you watch enough TV shows, you realize well, most of the interesting ones don't feature characters watching TV <laughs> because it's inherently <laughs> dramatic and not interesting. Like they're actually doing something. The writing in this book is something really magical on its own. It's so lyrical and poetic. I mentioned the line that I just love, but I highlighted many, many lines uh, in my copy of the book. And it made me wonder um, who your favorite authors are. Again, one of those tricky questions. I've never been good with lists. Yeah. Uh, I probably couldn't tell you what my favorite album or movie are uh, is either. Oh, influences. And it's changed so many times over the years. You know, uh, kind of young, cliched white guy 25 years ago in college, you know, I fell into the Raymond Carver trap. Um, becomes a dangerous writer to read because you just start imitating that ridiculously super clip style, which is so great and so interesting when you're reading it. Um <laughs> You know, along the way, I've just I've had various obsessions. Um, I'm trying to think of examples right now. Um, well, it's been very difficult for me even to explain 
to my friends what the book is about and what it is and how it's this literary ghost story. It's, a, it's just about a lot of different things, but just the way that it's composed is, is so, it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Even the things that I think are supposed to be just on the brink of craven and odd and absurd are beautiful. It, it made me wonder about that. Part of my style has just always been conversational. Like I sort of, I knew I wasn't somebody like uh, Marcel Proust who could write that kind of sentence. And I always try to write fiction as if I'm actually telling the story out loud to somebody in a bar who I might bore at any moment. So it, it's, it's very much trying to not be fancy with the writing and trying to just be very precise and clear. Um, I mean, looking at, again, some examples, like the Harry Potter books, they're, they're just wonderfully clear and wonderfully written. And I, I like that kind of thing. Uh, when, when I guess I always compare her writing in my mind to someone like E.B. White, where it's just mind bogglingly clear and simple. And it's so hard to do. Like if you read Charlotte's Web, you can't believe how clear his language is. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing too about this book is I think about, surrealism like I have friends who'll say oh I don't I don't really go for that I don't like surrealism but I always have to explain that that is where the reality is I mean that is where the richness of the story is is it does this sound familiar to you (laughs) yeah I'm laughing because I'm a David Lynch fan and (laughs) as the years go by I look at something like Twin Peaks and I think it's less and less weird (laughs) yeah I'm just like, my gosh, I know all of these people. I've met them all. Yeah. At some point, you've met Big Ed and maybe, and, and you, like, you, it's, it's not even a stretch. At a certain point, you're like, my gosh, these are a, a slight amplification of actual things. Mm-hmm. It's not just, uh, they're not these throwaway, you know, superfluous things that they can be there or they don't have to be there. They have to be there. They're, that's where the reality yeah. is expressed. In an interview, debut novelist Megha Majumdar, she just, um, her book, The Burning, just came out recently. She said that somehow, through some like osmotic situation, Netflix and this sort of episodic delivery of story has influenced her writing. Do yes. You, what do you think about that? It completely has influenced my writing. Um, I, I would say I recognized it back when I finally ended up watching Sopranos. I want to say it was when season four was airing. So how old am I? <laughs> when was that? I don't know, <laughs> early 2000s? I can't remember. But it seemed like that's when, for some weird reason, it seemed like all these shows were coming out that were about 10 to 13 episodes. And I remember just thinking it, it seemed almost random. Like, why 13? Why, so many of them were in the 10 to 13 range. And it started to feel like, that was the exact right pace to tell a novel length story. And I really started to think differently about long form structure. You know, you always kind of default maybe to the three act structure. And I suddenly started to think of it as, as a bit more of a 13 act structure, um, it, which could still be divided into thirds, but there was a certain kind of pacing and a certain kind of getting to know the characters that becomes really powerful. I, it, it was like watching a novel on TV for the first time because a two-hour movie never really did it. It was always so short. It would never feel like, you know, they got the book right. Mm. 
mm-hmm. it, it, it absolutely started to affect the way I was thinking a story. It works as a structure. And I don't even mean that in, you know, in that kind of backhanded way of, oh, you know, we don't have attention spans anymore and, you know, we can't focus anymore. Not even that way. It's just a very, it's just a way to structure something and it makes sense, of course, for a novel. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I was listening to an interview with um, Michaela Cole and she said she learned about structure just by Googling. <laughs> so I thought that was very yeah. interesting, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can't even remember where I've gotten certain things I take for granted. It's uh, it, it's sometimes worth going back and reading whatever fundamentals of writing book I read when I was in my 20s to see, like, do I still believe in this after all these years? Or yeah, is there some stuff I ought to refresh on? Um you know, there were some books I'd go back to over and over again, and at a certain point, I just thought, "Yeah, no, <laughs> it's not really helping me anymore." And speaking of Netflix, I saw in an interview where you said that you'd like to move into writing for television. I would. I, I'd love to try it. I, you know, screenplay format intimidated me badly for many years. It, it's surprising. It, it took me so long to finally give it a give it a whack. And I found I took to it quite well in terms of enjoying it. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the I don't know how great the product turned, but I really really liked writing a pilot, the series pitch, which I, I've done. You know, hopefully it finds its way into the world. Um, I have an agent who started putting it out just as Hollywood was shuttering for the virus, so you know who knows what the fate of it will be at this point. But I really enjoyed I really enjoyed thinking that way. I've always enjoyed writing dialogue, and you realize that most scripts at this point are they're almost nothing but dialogue. There's so little description, um, which can be scary. I mean, it's a huge trust fall into allowing other artists to come and bring all that other stuff to life for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't describe an expression. I can't you know, do the set dressing. You know, you can kind of indicate that dirty room in a hotel. So and so says you don't even say so and so says it angrily. It ought to be you know built into the dialogue that obviously that person's angry. Um, you know, it's like Shakespeare never really gave stage direction. It was somehow in the dialogue that you knew what Hamlet was trying to get across and how he was trying to do it. Wow, that so so- that sounds a lot like the conversations between William and June and. William and Mr. Stick, it's like, how is he going to talk to the ghosts? And then he yeah. does, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. the screenplays, the idea I had in my head, like the image I had in my head of a screenplay was almost like you're writing a novel and you can see it, but you're, you're shaking the pages so that pretty much all of the prose falls out. Oh. And there's kind of nothing left except dialogue and little hints of where this is and what it might feel like. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I want to ask you one last thing, and this is very self-indulgent. I read in the online webzine, The Morning News, your list of like uh, seriously scary movies. You're the only oh, person. Yeah. <laughs> you are the only person outside of my own family, my siblings, who has ever evoked "Let's scare Jessica to death." <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, one, so. that one has one of the all-time great jump scares in it. If I remember, it's been it's been years since I saw it. <laughs> well, it, I love finding those screwball horror movies. Yeah. Like, I, I say screwball in the sense that they're not commonly known, but they're, and they're not even necessarily great. But there's stuff in them that yeah. 
you can't you can't believe it when you see it. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the scariest movie for me. So I just thought yeah. I, I mentioned I was just sort of bop, 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 bopping along reading your stuff on there. And I then I saw Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I, I don't know of any other person who's ever referenced this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a great title. I, just, oh, yeah. I love the kind of title that's just so, you know, there, you know, there it is. <laughs> Let's not be fancy. <laughs> yeah. Which was really my, my tack on Ghost Love. Uh, you know, the previous novel, Bellwether, I always liked the title, but between that and the cover, I think most people picked it up and said, I don't even know what this is. You know, I don't uh-huh. know that this is an historical mystery adventure. And so I ended up writing this ghost love story, and I thought, well, what should I call it? And I thought, well, like, let's not beat around the bush. Let's just call it ghost love. Well, Dennis, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Dennis Mahoney is the author of Ghost Love. His two previous novels are Fellow Mortals and Bellwether. He runs the Equinox Society radio podcast of dark and otherworldly stories. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 